0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, I've Got Questions, with a message titled, Life and Death. So let's turn in our Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19, as we join Dr. Newfeld now.
1: We live in a day when the rules are changing. See, there was a time when abortions were not permitted. They are today, indeed, in the minds of many. An abortion is considered a basic right for women. There was also a time when any doctor who assisted in killing a patient would go to prison. Today, we're entering into a day when any physician who hides this as an option from their patient will be in danger of violating the codes of their profession. See, in short, we are at a time when it is permissible and even considered noble to kill both the child in the womb and the old person who is nearing death. In one country that I'm aware of, permission is given for medical doctors to end the life of a person who is considered to have lived a completed life, whatever that means. But behind all of this is a question. Shouldn't everyone have the right to choose life and death, that is, their own life and death? When our life reaches to the point where the quality of life is so greatly reduced, shouldn't we have the right to choose death? What if we're suffering? Now, before we move on, I wanna make a distinction between what in the past was called a distinction between passive euthanasia and active euthanasia. So it needs to be said that passive euthanasia is not euthanasia at all. You know, if someone decides to refuse medical care, that's not euthanasia. Look at it this way. We've all heard of the agony of a family that has to make a choice as to whether they will pull the plug on a family member. It's a heart-wrenching and often heartbreaking decision. But let's be clear, that's a decision that has been brought upon us by the advance in medical technology. You know, in past generations, no such decision would have been made for the patient would have already died. It's our ability to extend life, even when, for all intents and purposes, the body, can no longer sustain its own life, and that has made this an issue for us. And so the freedom to decline medical care, well, that's not suicide. In that case, a person can still entrust his or her life to the God who made it. God may still heal or he may end that life. Life and death in those cases can still be said to be in God's hands and and not in our own. Uh, But the choice to call for a medical professional to put us to death is a different kind of a choice. In our country, we sometimes call this MAID, or M-A-I-D. It stands for Medical Assistance in Dying. So, please don't let that nice-sounding language confuse you. Medical Assistance in Dying is just a nice way of saying that the doctor comes and kills you. Yes, it might be that a patient requests it, but that's the upshot of the matter. But that's just for clarification. I still haven't answered the question, shouldn't everyone have the right to choose life and death? Now, if you've been following this series, you'll know that I'm following the older catechisms, trying to teach the foundation of Christian truth to those who have not been instructed. And and I'm using the questions that we ask today to call us to re-examine the ancient questions that we should have been trained to ask in the first place. We need a foundation for truth on which to stand. What is the chief end of man, asked the old catechism, or what is the purpose of life, or my life in particular? To which we got the biblical answer, it is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And that we learned that we've been created not for our own comfort, but for the praise and glory of God. There is no greater joy for any Christian than to find our joy in God, and, and for that reason, the starting point of the Christian life is that my life is not designed for me to find personal peace and satisfaction in the way that I would define it, but rather it is for me to find satisfaction in God alone. Let's examine that matter in more depth. The question we must ask is this, how is it that God has created me? What does it mean for me to be human? What is a human being? You know, when the book of Genesis describes God's act of creation, it readily becomes apparent that human beings are profoundly different than everything else in all of creation. In Genesis 2 verse 7, we're told, "...then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostril the breath of life." So, I noticed two things. The first is that we're created from the dust, and in that sense, we share a similarity to all other created things. But the second is is that God uniquely breathed his breath into us. And the Hebrew word for breath is the same word that is used for spirit. Since God himself is spirit, we know that God breathes something of himself into us. This we're told is the image of God. So what does that mean? It means that in some ways we're remarkably like God, whereas in other ways we're not like God at all. Well, how are we unlike God? Well, for one, God is independent and needs no one. I, on the other hand, am dependent and cannot exist independently. God is changeless and I'm subject to change. God is eternal and exists by necessity, I'm finite. God is omnipresent, he's present to all spaces at all times. I, on the other hand, am by nature spatially located. God is all powerful, my power is limited. God is spirit, I'm flesh, I could go on and on. But in other ways, We as human beings have some capacities that are remarkably like God. God is righteous, and I have a capacity to know good and evil. God is love, and I have been created not just for relationship, but to give myself sacrificially for another. God is knowledge and truth and wisdom, and I not only have a portion of those things, but I also have the ability to use that knowledge to conceive of things that don't exist and then to bring them into being. You know, human beings can imagine cities and and technology and tools and complex interactions between things. And from that, we can bring about a reality that heretofore did not exist. You know, my father-in-law used to say, you know, if human beings can imagine it, and time will bring it into being. I, I think he was right. See, I know we have fallen into sin. And because of that, the image has become twisted and distorted and yet the image remains. But, and this is the key, even if we never bring anything into being, the very act of our creation in the image of God is valuable. It's not that we're useful that makes a difference. It's that we're the special project of God that makes a difference. That's why God permits the killing of animals, but not the killing of man. Created uniquely in the image of God and created to know our Creator, We alone of all the animals worship, for instance, that's because we possess a soul and a spirit. Even if we're born with multiple abnormalities and are mentally incapacitated, we remain uniquely in His image. Now, combine these two thoughts, created in the image of God and then created for God, that is, to know God, find our pleasure in Him. Now, let's go back to our original question. Shouldn't we therefore have the right to choose life and death? That is, when we suffer and the quality of our lives are downgraded, shouldn't we be allowed to choose to end our own suffering? But that question comes down to who we are. Certainly, it's not wrong to put a dog down, but how about ourselves? In answer to that, listen to Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 12, verses eight and nine. The context is that, that Paul is suffering probably from some physical malady. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, Then I am strong. See, Paul thought that his sufferings and his weaknesses forced him to rely on God more than ever before. That is, created in the image of God and created for God and then redeemed by Christ made him view his sufferings from another perspective entirely. It drove him more deeply into an intimacy with Christ that was heretofore not known by him. And he expresses something very similar again in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. He says there that I might know him and the power of his resurrection, watch this, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That is, when Paul suffered, he was reminded of Christ's sufferings. And in that way, he was drawn more closely to Christ because both he and Christ were united in suffering. Now, what does all that mean? It means that if we choose to end our lives by killing ourselves in some fashion, we proclaim ourselves of no more worth than an animal. In contrast, God says that he's going to use our sufferings to intensify our relationship with him. And we might say, but I'm not interested. When we're offered doctor-assisted suicide, what we're really offered is a perspective of life that is divorced from God. Deuteronomy 30 verse 19 says, I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing, therefore choose life.
0: Doesn't matter where you are in life, we all have questions. Questions about truth, meaning, right versus wrong. Critical questions about the right to choose, issues of gender, about life and death, about heaven, hell. Is the Bible any more important than any other book? Is Jesus really the only way to God? What about pain and suffering? You know, these are critical questions asked whether you're a follower of Jesus or not. Important questions that deserve answers and answers that we believe can be found in the Bible. I've Got Questions is Dr. Newfeld's newest series, And we want to make the entire series that addresses these and other questions available on CD for free for anyone who would ask. Ask for your copy, for yourself, for your church library, for a friend. All you need to do is visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.
1: A great many Christians are feeling slightly uncomfortable these days. It's that uncomfortable feeling that we get when we quote John 14 verse 6. Jesus said to them, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Well, it's the exclusive nature of the thing. It sounds like when we quote this verse that we're saying that, you know, we're right and everyone else is wrong. And that becomes even more awkward because we live in a society that stresses Tolerance for others and respect for views that are different from our own. The need to figure out how to live together with people of vastly different religious ideas. I mean, to say there's no other way to God other than through Jesus, well, I mean, that sounds nice when we say it in church, but dare we say it in public? So here's the question. Is Jesus the only way to heaven? Up till now, we've been saying that we're created in the image of God and that we are created for God, but why this narrow perspective on how to come to God and to find our pleasure in Him? Or let me put it even more forcefully so we don't miss the nature of what's being asked. I've had some very interesting and delightful conversations with Muslims. These are people who are conscious of God in all of life, who, who seek to live with God in mind, who pray faithfully, who fast regularly, and who tell me they are committed to God's sovereignty. What should we say in response to that? And so, living in a multi-religious culture forces us to examine the question that some of us have had doubts about in the first place, even though we might not have expressed them. But because I've been connecting our contemporary questions back to the ancient questions found in our Bible, well, we do well to step back for a moment and recount the biblical narrative. See, the Bible tells us that Adam and Eve, although they were created in the image of God, chose to rebel against their Creator. But we do well to ask ourselves, well, what is the nature of their sin? Or what is it that brought sin on the human race? Why are we alienated from God today? What exactly did our first parents do? And are we still doing the same thing today? So let's step back into the Garden of Eden. God has told Adam and Eve that they are free to eat of any tree in the garden. Indeed, He gives them a hedonistic delight—eat freely. Eat and enjoy what I've made. Eat, live, and every evening in the cool of the day, I will again enter the garden, and you will have fellowship with me. And then came the day when the serpent entered the garden and spoke with Eve. He addresses the woman with a question. Genesis 3, verse 1 records him as saying, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And then the woman explains that it's not that way at all. But when she explains, she leaves out some essential items. She doesn't mention that God told him to eat freely and the pleasure of God had for them. And furthermore, she says, we can't even touch that one tree. Of course, that's not exactly what God said. But in her mind, as she talks with the serpent, the issue becomes greater and the restriction looms, oh, so much more intrusive than it ever seemed before. And then she adds, the day we eat of the fruit of that tree, we're going to die. God has spoken, and even if I find the restriction oppressive. I'm still overawed by the threat of death, she says, so I'm going to obey. And then comes Genesis 3, verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. And at that moment, the woman hears something she's never heard before, and more so, she hears something that she would not have believed possible. She hears a voice that directly contradicts her creator, and more so, she hears a voice that calls her creator a liar. And that's why Christians have historically said that the heart of sin consists of two things, and and here's the first. Sin is the question of whom we're going to believe. Shall we believe God, or shall we believe the serpent and insult our maker by calling him a liar? The heart of all sin is unbelief. It is to hear God speaking and to say, I don't think he's telling me the truth. I think God is a liar, and therefore, if that's what sin is, if sin is unbelief, then we must think that if there's a way back to God at all, it's got to come through belief or it's got to come by faith. Now, remember, I've said there are two things that define the heart of sin. Let's go back to the Genesis account. After having told the woman that she would not die, then the serpent adds one more item. Genesis 3 verse 5 records him as saying, For God knows that when you eat of it, Your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, translation, God's trying to hold you back. You could be all that He is. You could be a God in your own right. You could be equal to the one who created you. Again, the two foundational sins, the cornerstone on which all sin is built, consists of unbelief and pride. Pride that I can navigate through life without God. And if you think about it, you should see, That all sin that you and I have ever committed have come out of those two attitudes. For instance, God says, don't commit adultery. We say, ah, but God, I would have pleasure in that act, a pleasure I would not find in you. You're withholding a great pleasure from me. I simply don't believe your command. You are a liar. Besides, if I chart my own course in terms of my sexuality, I will be a God. I will be free from your restraints. It's called pride and unbelief. That's called charging God with unrighteousness and making ourselves equal to him. And that's what all of sin is. It's a declaration of war against God. Now, one step further. According to Romans 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That is, all of us will die for our sins. Romans 3, says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That is, We may have been created for His glory, but we refused. We called God a liar, and we complained that He keeps us from our own destiny. You know, in Psalm 90, verse 7, Moses said, For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. So think about it. God is planning the death of every single human being, you and I included. We will die for our sins, and more so. We have also already died spiritually, and that God now is distant from us. Our sins separate us from God. What's to be done about our sin? Now, listen to me now. That is, the fundamental question, this is it, this is the question the Bible addresses. And listen also, it's that question that only the Christian faith seeks to answer. In Buddhism and Hinduism, sin against our maker is not even addressed at all. Buddhism doesn't even believe in a god at all, and Hinduism, with its many gods, really is created to address the issue of enlightenment, not sin and forgiveness, or finding mercy and salvation. Hinduism doesn't even talk about that. That's why some cultural experts speak about the differences between shame-based cultures rather than guilt-based cultures. In shame-based cultures, the greatest issue is saving face. In guilt-based cultures, the, the greatest issue is sin and finding forgiveness. It's a different construct entirely. Listen, when we say that Jesus is the only way to God, we mean that in the death of Jesus, a payment was made that satisfies the justice of God and settles the matter, both of righteousness and of our need for mercy. Now, listen closely. It's not about my religion is right and yours is wrong. That's not even the issue. Listen, hear me. Pay attention. Listen, stop being distracted right now. Listen. There is no religious system in the world that explains how a righteous God can remain righteous and yet at the same time forgive sins. Look, no one says, well, Buddha or Muhammad or Krishna or you name it can take away your sins. No, no, no religion makes that claim. There is in this world no other religion or philosophy or way of thinking that explains how God can remain just and forgive sins at the same time. The only explanation that the human race has ever heard to that question is found in the cross of Jesus. The only other possibility is to argue that sin is not a big issue at all. And so the primary question is not, is Jesus the only way? The primary question is this. How can my sins be forgiven? And if you want them forgiven and you want God to remain righteous, there is only one answer that the human race has ever heard. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. That is, no one has their sins erased and is declared righteous before God but through him. See, let's not hide that. No one else is even making that claim. And this is what the Bible teaches and this is the only hope the human race has in the midst of our sin and of its consequence, which is death. And since the wages of sin is death, we learn that through Jesus, we have an offer of life. Again, let me quote Deuteronomy 30 verse 19. I have set before you life and death, blessings and cursings. Therefore, choose life.
0: John, as I was listening today, I, I'm just reminded over and over and over again of this term universalism uh, that we see and hear everywhere, with, with, which in essence, I think, brings us to the fact that if universalism is true, then the Bible is not
1: yeah, I, I've often thought of universalism, I mean, we, we're trying so hard to be open-minded. I mean, I get it. But we're so open-minded that we're no longer thinking. So for instance, you know, when people say all religions lead to heaven, well, please understand that Buddhism isn't trying to get you to heaven. Uh, by its own claim, it's not making that claim. And, and so you know that the goal of various religions is so diametrically opposed to those goals in other religions. So. Universalism tries to make, we're all going somewhere, but where would that place be? And no two religions can even agree about that. So, you know, as much as universalism sounds like a nice term and it's a way of being, you know, open to others, it's simply not a thoughtful term. And I, for myself, I I find it completely a useless term. It doesn't work well.
0: Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series I've got questions right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. As the month winds down, we want to make sure you take the opportunity to be part of our ministry match pledge that's been provided by a group of ministry friends. This group has committed a match pledge of $75,000 to the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada so that for every dollar or donation you make, they'll match it up to $75,000. If you've been considering offering a gift to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada in doubt, laugh again, or truth in life today, this would be an excellent time to double your impact. So to be clear, if you make a gift today of 500 dollars $1,000, your gift will automatically be doubled up to $75,000. Would you help us take full advantage of this opportunity today? All you need to do is make your donation by calling us at 1-800-663-2425 or give securely online at backtothebible.ca.